This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Please be advised, this podcast contains graphic audio and themes that may not be appropriate for all listeners. There's so much life in each one, each one of these apartments and condos, so much life that just have to be like a forensic detective and start pulling back the layers and just examining each person who lived in that building. We have been hearing the word forensic a lot in this series in the context of the forensic investigation into how and why Champlain Tower South failed so catastrophically almost a year ago. But what longtime Miami Herald reporter and editor Joan Chrysos is talking about here is being a forensic detective when it comes to the stories of the lives lost in the disaster. Last June, in her role of running health and education coverage, Chrysos was focused on COVID and school closures in South Florida. But on the morning of June 24th, her role changed dramatically. I have worked at the Herald for, for more than 35 years. And after Surfside, I became the editor in charge of telling the stories of those who are missing and those who died. As we've heard throughout this series, the Herald has covered Surfside from every possible angle from the very beginning. There were reporters on the scene, at the hospitals, at Surfside Town Hall, working the phones, talking to structural engineers, talking to survivors, finding family members. All of those voices that we've heard from in the first 11 episodes in our series. We have gone deep inside every aspect of this story with these reporters. How, how did this actually happen in the middle of the night with it, it just out of nowhere? That I'm not sure there's anything that really prepares you for how mind-boggling that is. Are you okay? Is anybody down there injured? Yeah, fire, fire rescue's on their way. This is huge. I mean, humongous. We had never seen anything like this. It defied the imagination. Why did the building fall down? What happened? What caused that? This looked like a miniature version of the Twin Towers. And we had to figure out how to cover that. I heard the big boom, boom, boom. They don't have, they don't have a, a, no pads no, I, I wish I did. The lady come downstairs and was like, did you hear that? I say, that's the elevator. She said, no, no. We're going to need assistance with this rescue from the second floor. Delta side. The building is at risk for a further collapse. Stay in your ground. Keep in a safe spot. We will get to those individuals. Notify them the best that you can at this time. We've heard them reconstruct the collapse timeline using witness and survivor accounts, 911 calls, even the sound of rebar snapping inside concrete in a lab. We've heard these reporters tell us the history of the town of Surfside, 
how Canadian developers made Champlain Towers a reality, and how the son of a Cuban immigrant put up a super luxury building right next door. We've also been exclusively inside the briefing room where families waited for word of their missing loved ones. We've been inside the courtroom where neighbors pointed fingers and fought over money. We've heard about the massive settlement, which we'll hear more about later in this episode. And we've been inside the story of how, thanks to Florida politics, change will be slow to come, if it comes at all, in the wake of this tragedy. We are gonna transition from search and rescue to search and recovery. My pain is unbearable. I am constantly suffering. My heart is shattered into a million pieces and beyond repair. Once you get past the engineers and the contractors and the developers and the town of Surfside and the condo association and the consultants, you start blaming your neighbor. This memorial should be a permanent reminder of what happened here at 87.7 Collins Avenue. We do not build over dead bodies. I have awakened in the middle of the night screaming. The surreal abyss that confronted us when we opened our front door to face the ocean. And the feeling of water around my ankles in the garage, paralyzing me with the fear of being electrocuted. Buildings do not just randomly collapse in the middle of the night. I'm Paul Beban. And in this, our final episode of Collapse, Disaster in Surfside, we are going back to the beginning, to that first morning when Joan Chrysos and the rest of the Herald's top editors were on a Zoom call, still trying to get their heads around this disaster and its staggering human toll. We're going to spend most of this last episode hearing about and honoring the lives lived and lost in this tragedy. And we will hear from Joan Chrysos and other journalists at the Herald about the painstaking process of care, compassion, and craft that has gone into writing about all 98 of them. There was a lot, a lot of adrenaline. It was probably late morning when we had that meeting, and so we're still coming off of what's going on, what happened, um, deploying people. Um, we're just trying to figure this this out, and it was maybe 10 editors, 10 or 11, 12 editors, and we start parsing out teams and who's going to do what, who's going to be there for the spot news at the site, and who are the team of people that are going to be 24-7 at that site, who's going to start looking into problems on the investigative front. We have been around long enough to know with big stories that usually there's a problem that has to be investigated. And then in this case, we knew that there were going to be people missing initially we thought there were about 150 people in that building. I don't know how we got that number, but we thought there was 140 to 150 people who had perished in that building. And in that meeting, the Herald made a decision, a commitment. The newsroom was going to do much more than just identify everyone who died in this disaster. No, every single life lost was going to be reported out and remembered with a full obituary. And that, that was a job for Joan Chrysos. 
we didn't expect a lot of the people in that building to come out and be rescued in the rubble. You know, we figured that there may be one or two or three, but most of the people who were in that building were not going to have survived and that we have to start putting a team together to write stories about the people in the building. And as we start start plotting what we're going to do and who's going to handle what, I just remember being, you know, asked, told, volunteered. I don't remember exactly what happened, but Joan, you're going to lead the coverage of the the people. We want to do stories on every single person in that building. Chrysos's first love is writing about people. And she told me that on this very first day, she had a kind of revelation. As she faced the seemingly terrible task of making a list of the lost, of putting faces to names and then telling the final version of their life stories, drawing a circle around a seemingly bottomless pool of grief and sorrow, she realized that this was the work that she had been meant to do and had been preparing for it for her entire career. She was in the right place at the right time, and she felt humbled, grateful to be right where she was. This building was an amazing tapestry of people who lived there. There were people from ages one years old to 92. 92. Such a rich mixture of people. There were teachers, coaches. There was a whole network of people who came from the Cuban, Jewish, Puerto Rican diaspora. There were young families that were starting over. That building was, people gravitated to start a new life. Over the years, I've written so many profiles. It's what I love to do, and I love the details about telling the stories of people's lives and getting, getting the details that nobody else has. So I looked at this as, oh my goodness, this is everything I have always loved about journalism, to write the stories about people. And I couldn't think of a more meaningful way to tell the stories about the people who died and honoring them. And uh, it was such an honor for me to be in charge of this team. It was all my strengths and all my years, more than 35 years at the Herald, coming together in one moment to focus on the stories about the people who died that terrible day. Miami Herald editor Joan Chrysos told me that while writing about the missing got underway immediately, it soon transitioned to writing mostly about the dead. Initially, when we were first writing the stories about the people, we wrote them as vignettes of the missing. And we started that on Thursday and Friday and all through the weekend. And because the first victims were not announced by the police until maybe Saturday. And, and it was one victim, just one person. And she was pulled from the rubble and she died in the hospital. She's the only person that was actually pulled from the rubble 
alive, along with her son, but he survived. We were on two tracks. We were writing obituaries of the people whose bodies had been recovered, but we were still writing vignettes of the missing in the hope that maybe, maybe they would be recovered alive. Until they were announced by the police that they were that their bodies had been found. And even though it wasn't official until search and rescue became search and recovery in early July, Chrysos told me that writing those vignettes, those little stories about the missing, well, that didn't last very long. You knew? Maybe yeah. that way. By Sunday, we knew we weren't writing missing stories anymore. We were writing obituaries. Obituaries, yeah. I would say that that's the case. I think the first set of obituaries ran in Monday's paper. You know, by I would say by Monday or Tuesday, it became evident that we were going to be writing obituaries, no longer missing vignettes. The list coming from the police department, which is what we had to go by, were two or three people. At the end of the day, these were the people whose bodies were recovered. Um on this date and their names. After we'd written these missing vignettes of people and we'd written maybe a few dozen, then we had to go back to those stories and make them into obits because we had quotes from people saying, I'm praying right now. I'm praying that they're going to be found. That, you know, And we had quotes like that from people in the missing. So we had to go back totally and rewrite them as obituaries from the missing. Veteran journalists often approach obituaries as a privilege, the honor of writing a life story. And it's got a natural structure to work with, a beginning, a middle, and an end. But when the end is so shocking and so sudden for so many of all ages and stages of life, even the most seasoned writers can wither under the emotional weight of this work. Chrysos said the story of one family in particular, the Catarossis, hit the staff especially hard. Three generations, aged seven to 89, were wiped out in the collapse. Before we talk about this one family, though, I want to say that all of these lives are worthy of our attention. There are so many more than we can do in just one episode. But each and every one is memorialized in a special section on the Herald's website. Floor by floor, unit by unit, you can go through the building to see who lived where and link to what the Herald wrote about them. A little background now about the Catarossis. This multi-generational family lived in Unit 501. Gino, 89, was a retired engineer from Argentina who loved to paint. His wife, Graciela Ponce de Leon, 86, was a former United Nations diplomat from Uruguay who was also passionate about the arts. Their daughter, Graciela, 48, had built a photography business while raising her little girl, Stella, who was seven. And if you listen to episode seven, you can hear Mariana Lopez, a survivor who worked at the school where Stella and three of her schoolmates in Champlain Tower South were enrolled. I am the registrar at Ruth K. Broad Bay Harbor K-8 Center, the local public school. Four of the children who perished that night 
Emma, Lucia, Stella, and Lorenzo were all students at the school. I watched them grow both at home and in school. Many of us at Bay Harbor School, teachers, administrators, and classmates share in grieving the loss of these innocents. At the time of the disaster, Stella's aunt Andrea, who was 56, was in town from Buenos Aires staying with her younger sister, her niece, and her parents. She was there to help out while Gino recovered from having a pacemaker replaced. Joan Chrysos told me about some of the detective work that Herald reporter Adriana Brasileiro did to tell the story of this loving, cultured, and cosmopolitan clan of five. She was able to uncover by going back to the original United Nations archives. Most people wouldn't even know how to do that. From the 1950s, that this woman was a key person meeting people like Nikita Khrushchev, Golda Meir, and working for the Uruguayan ambassador to the UN, who was a key official in the creation of the State of Israel. And all that came through the obituary of this one family who lived in the Champlain Towers. It still gives me chills when I'm telling you this story about little Stella and her mother and her father and her grandparents and her aunt, the only one who's still alive is the father, the Miami firefighter, who kept, who kept vigil at that scene. The story of Stella's father, a Miami firefighter, and as Chrysos said, Stella's only remaining close relative, is one of almost unbearable grief. He has asked the Herald and other media outlets not to identify him. He was at the site for seven days and eight nights until Stella and her mother were recovered together on July 2nd. A day or two later, while search operations were still ongoing, Herald reporter Alex Harris interviewed Broward County Battalion Chief Nicole Naughty. She's a canine handler who had been combing the site in 16-hour shifts with her dog named Dig since the early morning of June 24th. As the work ground on behind them, Naughty told Harris about the moment when Stella and her mother were found, when the more than 200 emergency workers on the pile stopped their equipment and stood silent while Stella, her mother, and her father left the site. And the quietness of the site, all the construction machines shut down, nobody making a sound, no concrete being moved, no, no metal sounds, nothing. Just the sound of the footsteps of them carrying her away. Um, it's definitely gonna live in my mind forever. Here's Joan Chrysos reading the first few lines of the story that Alex Harris wrote about Nicole Naughty and her struggles to deal with the trauma of her job. There will be many scars from the days that Nicole, Naughty, and her dog, Dig, have spent searching the ruins of Champlain Towers South, hoping for signs of life and finding none. But she knows one moment will haunt her. The recovery of Stella Catarossi, 
the seven-year-old daughter of a fellow firefighter who had stood vigil at the site. The quietness of the site, all the construction machines shut down. Nobody making a sound, no concrete being moved, no metal sounds, nothing. Just the sounds of the footsteps of them carrying her away. It's definitely going to live in my mind forever. Stella's Aunt Andrea was found on July 5th, and her grandparents were recovered on July 6th. The work of writing 98 obituaries took more than a month. Estelle Hadaya was one of the first people identified as missing on June 26th, but her remains weren't identified until July 26th. The Herald published her full obituary, the last one, on July 29th, and here's how it begins. Estelle Hadaya went by different names depending on her audience. Her family and friends called her Stella, for short, but she was also known as Cha-Cha for her iconic moves on the dance floor. Online, she was known as the author of a travel and food blog called Follow the Toes. Hadaya, 54, was identified as one of the 98 victims in the collapse of the Champlain Tower South Condo in Surfside. She lived in apartment 604. And as I mentioned earlier, you can find all of these remembrances in a special section on the Herald's website. It's called A Neighborhood Lost. At the same time the Miami Herald was covering the loss of individual lives in Champlain Tower South, it was also covering the collective loss, the disappearance of what had been the vibrant community of this building. Longtime Herald reporter Linda Robertson called it a small town within a small town. Champlain Tower South was the first, you know, high rise. It was only 13 stories high, but... It was the first oceanfront high-rise in this little town of Surfside. Um, and it was built in 1981 and during a you know real building boom time in Miami. And the way that it had evolved, the way that the people who lived there had changed over the years was a real reflection of greater Miami's demographic evolution as well. So I thought it would be interesting not only to bring these people sort of back to life in a way so that our readers could uh, relate to them and empathize with their family members, but also to show how this place was a reflection of, you know, Miami itself. Robertson has been a reporter for The Herald since 1983, much of it as a sports writer who specialized in deep profiles. In one of her many pieces about Champlain Tower South, she wrote, Why those 98 people, ranging in age from 1 to 92 years old, were killed in a 25 million pound avalanche of steel, furniture, appliances, sinks, ceilings, computers, shoes, and heirlooms is eternally unanswerable. Tragedy doesn't explain itself. 
What can be reconstructed is how victims and survivors came to be in Champlain South on that night, most asleep inside their piece of paradise, whether placed there by routine, delivered by fate, carried by sorrow, or drawn by love. Robertson told me she thought the building would be recognizable to a wide audience, the millions of people who have visited South Florida. It was an older building. It wasn't a luxury condominium. So I think a lot of people sort of could relate to the building and the people who live there because so many people have vacationed in South Florida, in Miami, and they've stayed in buildings on the waterfront, on the oceanfront, that weren't particularly, you know, uh, high-end. And originally, this building was occupied by a lot of older um, immigrants, especially Cuban immigrants. And, And then over time, it had changed more families living there, more Latin Americans from different countries, aside from Cuba, more international kind of crowd Uh, living there. Kids had moved in with their parents, so it was kind of a microcosm of, of Miami as well. Over the years, Robertson said, the building had also drawn a large number of Jewish residents, especially from Latin America. Surfside has a higher Jewish population than, you know, the country as a whole. There are a number of synagogues there and a number of Orthodox synagogues that people can walk to on the Sabbath. And when Cubans first immigrated to Miami in 1959, the early 60s, a lot of them end up in Miami Beach because there was a major synagogue there that was supporting them and welcoming them. And Surfside became like a logical sort of move up in the world because instead of staying at these little hotel efficiencies in Miami Beach, they could move into a building like Champlain Tower South. They could build, move into these little homes in Surfside, you know, nicer buildings. And so it became a hub of the Juban population. And one of the nicknames was the Tower of the Abuelas because a lot of Cuban grandmothers lived there and um, Jewish Cuban grandmothers, and that's Abuela. And they would have their grandkids over to swim in the pool and play on the beach. Over time, it just became sort of a hub for that group, and thus um, this idea that, that everybody knew someone in that building, if you lived in Miami. In one of her stories on Champlain Tower South, Robertson spoke with Sergio Lozano, who lost both of his parents. Lozano lived nearby and had dinner with them the night of the 23rd. He told Robertson, quote, what hurts the most is that these people died in their home. They were betrayed by their own home. We recognize the warning signs now, but they never saw it coming. Joan Chrysos has been Robertson's close friend and editor for years. Linda gets details like nobody gets details. She has that curiosity and wants to know you know, Sergio Lozano, not only did he have dinner with his parents the night before the tower collapsed, but she wanted to know what he had for dinner. He had pork tenderloin because that was his favorite dish and his mother made it. And the dessert with the lady fingers, 
you know, with the custard, you could visualize them on the plate. You could smell them. You could taste them. That's what a good reporter does, brings you there to the moment. Another of the many relatives Robertson spoke with was Pablo Rodriguez, who lost his mother and grandmother. Rodriguez talked about the first day and the agony of waiting for his abuela and his bisabuela to be identified. My uncle called me that morning and he just kept crying and apologizing and saying, your mom, Champlain, um, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And we're like, what are you, what are you talking about? Um, turn on the news and all you see is the, the pictures of the, of the building collapsed. Um, we start calling them, we start trying to reach them, trying to reach the emergency numbers. Um, at the time, we actually had a little bit of hope because from the pictures, it looked like maybe her unit was one of the lucky ones that was spared. We hop in the car, start going over to Surfside, and on the way there, my wife's driving. I'm looking on the phone, trying to get any information I can, and um, about halfway there, that's when the video was released of the tower collapsing, and uh, I lost it at that point because it's I can see my mom's apartment just come completely crashing down and then another building fall on top of it. So it's at that moment, it's, it's really the moment that I was watching them die. That's all that I kept seeing in my head. It was just one really long, long day that was a nightmare um, where I was just walking around, not sure what day it was, what's happening. Um, it was all a fog. Uh, and everything that kept replaying in my head was just the video of the building collapsing, seeing my mom, my grandmother die, and, and wondering all kinds of different scenarios on were they suffering? Did they survive the crash and then die? Or how, how long were they suffering? Which way, like all these trying not to let myself go there, but it just kept going on, on the different ways that they were suffering. When the police department showed up to notify us, um, they told us that they found both of them and in the medical examiner's opinion, um, you know, they didn't suffer and they probably wouldn't have even known that the building collapsed. Um, not sure how they, how they know that. I don't know if, even if it's true or not, but I'm willing to, to believe it because I, I need to believe that. Manuel Manny LaFont was a beloved baseball coach who had lived in Unit 801 for more than a decade, previously with his two kids and wife, Adriana, before they divorced. Manny and Adriana shared custody of Mia and Santi. LaFont coached Santi's baseball team, the Astros. But it rained on June 23rd and practice was canceled, so LaFont called Adriana to ask if Santi could sleep over, which he often did. They were watching a soccer game on TV, Brazil versus Colombia. But Adriana told Linda Robertson she just wanted Santi home that night. And Manny said, okay, and drove Santi to her place. Here's Adriana recorded by the Herald as she visited the site of her family's former home. I live in Champlain Towers for 11 years. And I had such a great memories from this place. I thought that I would be stronger coming here, but I don't know, the air, the, the sea, the place, it brings so much emotions to me, I, so, so much memories that it's so painful that we don't have that anymore because we lost money, but we also lost everything that belongs to him. We don't have anything, anything. So that is even harder to accept. 
to come here is, is very hard. I cannot imagine my kids coming here to this beach again. That night, uh, Santi was playing with Manny baseball as usual. And around 8.30, they called me and Manny asked me, Adriana, may I stay with Santi for tonight? For some reason that at this day, I don't understand why my mouth say no. And for some reason, Manny accepted without saying anything. He said, okay, I will bring you to your house. For me, that's, that's a miracle. I mean, that's it. It was not my kid's day to die <laughs> that night. That's it. I mean, there's no other explanation. No other explanation. As Linda Robertson wrote, tragedy doesn't explain itself. Before we conclude this series, we're going to hear one more time from Judge Michael Hansman, who oversaw the class action lawsuit filed by the victim's families and the survivors against a slew of defendants. You may recall we reported that a nearly $1 billion settlement was reached just a couple of weeks ago in the class action case, and since then, the beachfront lot where the building stood has been sold for $120 million, bringing the total money available to almost $1.1 billion. The task of distributing that money to the families and survivors is just getting underway and is expected to take many months. The size of the settlement took even Judge Hansman by surprise. When it was announced in court, you could hear him gasp and mutter, Jesus. Under his breath, he was so thankful and astonished at the result. Hansman then addressed the court, heaping praise on the lawyers and others on all sides who had brought swift resolution to such an enormously complex and emotional case. He spoke to the families, quoting Cicero, and because it's a little hard to hear him, here is the line, there is no grief which time does not lessen or soften. For the victims out there, you know, um, there's a quote from Cicero that there is no grief which time does not lessen or soften. I pray that's true. I'm not sure it is because some of these victims can never recover from this loss. And we know that. And I'm not going to say up here that this resolution allows them to move on or heal or anything like that, because that's just not true. And one thing I always promise the victims in this case from the beginning is honesty. And we all know uh, that there's no amount of money in the world that can possibly compensate for some of the loss that we've heard about in this case over the last 10 months. We have taken a, a tragic black swan event, which I hope we will never see again. And we have done the best we can in a judicial form to try to resolve it for these victims. Now, you know, to the lawyers, I just want to say again, stepping up um, with no assurance of compensation, doing this as a public service. Um, I don't want to be trite, but there are a couple quotes that I think are, are pertinent here today. And I'm going to quote Gandhi for one which is the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. 
and Martin Luther King, who said, uh, life's most powerful urge and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? I know this has been a very difficult task for the lawyers. Emotionally, uh, they've, they've given up their time, time with their families. I hope uh, that you're as proud of yourselves as I am of you. I hope in doing this as a quasi-public service, you have uh, found something about yourself and learned some things about yourself. Um, and I hope that you know uh, what you have done for others and that you appreciate what you have done for others because what you have done for these victims of this tragedy is, uh, is just simply remarkable. I don't know what else there is to say. This case has just been extremely difficult for everyone involved. And um, I'm just overwhelmed uh, with gratitude. I just could not be more proud of all of you. Finally now, to what journalists sometimes call the long tail of a story. The Herald recently won, you might have heard, this year's Pulitzer Prize for its breaking news coverage of Surfside. But its investigative coverage, which we've heard a lot of in this series, has never stopped and is still ongoing. The investigative team still has more big stories about Surfside to break, even as the first anniversary approaches. Casey Frank has been at the Herald for more than 40 years as a reporter, editor, and for the last decade, the editor in charge of the investigative team. In the wake of their reporting, federal investigators actually reached out to experts about the causes of the collapse, something Frank said is fairly unprecedented. Now, Casey Frank is a very self-effacing Midwesterner from Chicago who resisted being interviewed for this podcast. He wanted to focus on his team's work, which he did in our interview. But I think you'll be as glad as I am that I convinced him to let me record him. The Miami Herald has a tradition of investigative reporting that goes back probably close to a century. Back to the Knight brothers, John and James Knight, who were the uh, founders of the Knight Ritter newspaper chain. Uh, Great traditional, tough uh, newsmen who, you know, who believed that this wasn't just a business. Yes, they wanted to make money, but they wanted to uh, tell stories and tell the truth and hold people accountable. And, And they made sure that the Miami Herald did. And that tradition has been handed down like an heirloom for decade after decade after decade. And I watched it for a long time, seeing the great investigative editors that came before me, uh, admired them, wanted to be them, aspired to do the things that they did. And finally, 10 years ago, I got that chance. And uh, it has been a privilege. Uh, It can be scary at times because so much crazy stuff happens in South Florida and you need eight hands, eight arms, in order to get your arms around it. And, and I think that's what we did with Surfside. I really believe that looking back on the last year, that, uh, that we did this right, that we did an honorable job, we, that we continue to do an honorable job of getting to the bottom of what took place in this building 
And I say that in part because the, the survivors, the families of the dead, the, the people who lived through this ordeal come to us and say, thank you for the work you, that you've done. On behalf of the team at Treefort Media, I want to add our thanks to the survivors, the families, and to our fellow journalists at the Miami Herald for their high standards, their hard work, and for their collaboration with us. We hope that together, as Cassie Frank just said, that we have done an honorable job of presenting this story. And as we heard Judge Hansman say, we are so grateful to everyone who gave their time and energy and emotion to this narrative journalism project. It has been a tremendous privilege. May our work here be worthy of the 98 lives lost, and may their memories be a blessing. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside is produced by Treefort Media, the Miami Herald, and the McClatchy Company. Visit miamiherald.com forward slash surfside dash podcast, that's all lowercase, to learn more about our investigation and to read articles mentioned in today's episode. And if you can, please rate the episode as well, as it'll help others find our podcast. Our hearts and our admiration go out to our guests who have so bravely shared their stories so that we may bring to light the many stories of all the people impacted by this tragedy. We also want to thank the experts who have joined us for sharing their insights. Special thanks to the team at WLRN in Miami, as well as CBS 4 News in Miami, for sharing supplementary materials to help us tell this story. Collapse, Disaster, and Surfside was executive produced by Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort Media, Monica Richardson, and Rick Hirsch for the Miami Herald. I'm your host, Paul Bieben. The series was written and produced by Eric Salant and me, Paul Bieben, for Treefort Media. Editing by Maxwell Carney and Abigail Sullivan. Mixed by Maxwell Carney. Treefort Head of Audio is Tom Monahan. Line produced by Oscar Guido. English translations by Anne Liu and Lindsay Whistler. With additional production assistance by Jared Brom, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motil, and Lindsay Whistler. For the Miami Herald, Monica Richardson serves as executive editor. Managing editor is Rick Hirsch. Senior Vice President of News, Kristen Roberts. Senior Vice President of Advertising, Tony Berg. McClatchy Managing Editor, Cynthia DuBose. Audience Development Editor, Adrian Rui. Miami Investigative Editor, Casey Frank. Miami Herald Senior Editor, Dave Wilson. Miami Herald Information Services, Monica Leal. Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media and the Miami Herald. Sound recording copyright 2021 by Treefort Media.